0: Well, I trust that there were some great moments of reflection this morning as we celebrated the Lord's table, and not just inward reflections of who we are, but hopefully some outward reflections of who God is as well. And today we're going to focus our attention, I'm going to ask a whole bunch of questions today. I'm going to ask a lot of questions and there's going to be one that I'm, I want you to ponder throughout the message this morning. It may be one of the more important questions that you will answer. And that question is, who do I believe God is and do I act like that is true? Who do I believe God is and do I act Like that is true. You see, it's really easy sometimes and simple to know who Jesus is and what he has done. We can read about that. But we need to reflect on what do we do with that information? It's not just about knowing, it's about actually doing something with it. Is Jesus the Lord of your life? Or maybe he's just one of them. Do we trust God alone or are we reliant on other things instead? If God is worthy of all of our trust and all of our worship, why do we so often try to replace him with other things? For some people, it might be success and money. For others, it might be, I'm more concerned about what other people might think of me. Maybe on Sunday you're here at Calvary and you're one person, but the rest of the week people would have no idea that you're a faithful follower of Jesus. Maybe you've placed your hope in luck or the universe. Or maybe your hope is simply found in human discovery as opposed to divine realities Well, as we continue in our series on Elijah and Elisha, our Daring Dudes in Dark Days, we're going to find this situation of do you worship God alone in 1 Kings 18, 16 to 46. This might be a familiar story, so let's read through the text together. 1 Kings 18, 16 to 46. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab. Remember, Ahab is the king of Israel. That's God's chosen people. And told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, is that you, you troubler of Israel? I've not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied. But you and your father's family have. You've abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I'm the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bolts for us. Let Baal's prophets choose for the one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I'll prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of the Lord, or call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning until noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar that they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he's a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought, or busy, or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response, no one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold 2 seahs of seed. He arranged the wood cut the bull into pieces and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again he said and they did it again. Do it a third time he ordered. And they did it the third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so these people will know that you, Lord, are God. And that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil. And also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them. And Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. And Elijah said to Ahab, go, eat and drink, for there is the sound of a heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel, bent down to the ground, and put his face between his knees. Go and look toward the sea, he told the servant. And he went up and looked. There's nothing there, he said. Seven times, Elijah said, go back. The seventh time, the servant reported, a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. So Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds. The wind rose and a heavy rain started falling and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. The power of the Lord came on Elijah And tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. This is the word of God. Father, we just thank you this morning. We thank you for this time of worship that we've had. This time where we celebrated the Lord's table and what you've done. Father, I pray for each of us today as we hear of what you did on Mount Carmel through Elijah, Lord that you would allow that to penetrate to our hearts this morning. God, would you reveal things to us today that we haven't seen or we haven't noticed? And then, Lord, through the help of the Holy Spirit and through his power alone, would you help us to commit to change, Lord, to repent? And, Father, grow more in your likeness, I pray, in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. You know, sometimes when we read through the scriptures and we read through familiar stories like this, especially when they're familiar stories, sometimes we can look at them as though they're just stories from the Bible. If you read through Genesis, you might think to yourself, well, there's a story of Adam and Eve and and of Noah and of Abraham and of Joseph and of Judah Maybe reading through Exodus, you think to yourself, there's the story of Moses and how the Israelites were freed from Egypt. The word of God is not a collection of stories about people. We have to remember that. And as we read through the scriptures, we have to remember that the entire Bible, all of it is God's story. It's all about him. He's always the main focus, and he is always the hero. So while we see what Elijah was doing in this confrontation, we have to, for contact, for context, we have to remind ourselves and ask ourselves, what do we learn about God in this passage? What do we learn about God here? And I'm going to submit to you this morning that there are at least, and I say at least, this is 31 verses, There is so much wrapped up in here, but there were at least five things that I saw that really popped out at me that shows the awesomeness of God. The first one is this. He is gracious. God is gracious. God's patience and grace is so apparent in this text because he could have done far worse to the people, to his people, but he's about to do something through Elijah, and the situation remember, there was three years of drought, and that was about to come to a climactic end. Now, up to this point in the Old Testament, remember that the Israelites have seen God do a lot of things, a lot of incredible things. They'd seen themselves delivered from the Pharaoh in Exodus ultimately bringing them to the promised land while providing them with manna and quail. All this while showing them that his presence was there in a physical way, in the the pillar of cloud and smoke as they wandered through the wilderness. And here they are, these Israelites, God's chosen people in the middle of a drought. So naturally, they decide to go to Baal because Baal was supposedly the god who provided rain. I mean, why would they go to Yahweh God? Why would they go to Yahweh, the God of Israel? They had this they knew what was going on in Genesis 1, God created water. In Genesis 6 to 9, we read about how he flooded the earth in complete control of the rain. In Exodus 14, he parted the Red Sea. In Exodus 17, water was drawn from a stone. Yahweh had clearly shown that he was in complete control of the elements. Yet here were these Israelite Baal prophets turning to somebody else to save them, to provide them salvation from the drought. And by the way, they weren't just looking to a totally false God for their solution. Here's some grace. In verse 17, the Israelite king, Ahab, actually blamed Elijah, calling him the troubler of Israel. Ahab thought that Baal wasn't answering them because somehow Elijah, by only praying to God, to Yahweh, to the only God, had offended Baal in some way. You know, God could have struck the king down right there. Right in that moment, he could have struck him down. And yet, even though everything that God had done up to this point, here were his people, uncaring, untrusting, and completely rebellious against God. This is why Elijah can answer the charge when Ahab says, you, you troubler of Israel, look at how he responds. He says, I'm not the troubler, but you and your father's family have troubled Israel. You've abandoned the Lord's command and have followed the Baals. Because of that act, in one act, God had every reason and every justification to completely wipe them out. But instead he shows them grace. Doesn't he do that for us? Do you recognize this right now in your life? Right now. That we are sitting here in the parking lot at 300 Roslyn Road or we're watching online. And all of us are sinners saved by grace. All of us... What does it tell us in Romans? It says in Romans 6:23 the wages of sin is death. Every one of us is only here because of God's grace to us. And in our text there's a reason he's providing this grace. He's going to show his sovereignty. And he's going to show them just how empty their worship to Baal actually was. God had proven himself over and over and over. And we have to remind ourselves of that. God has given us so much grace. He's provided us with so many second chances. And when we really do that, when we really recognize God's grace in our lives, we can recognize the second point, And that is that he alone is worthy He is worthy. God does not accept partial worship. You are either all in or you are all out. You're either all in or you're not. Don't we read about this? Think about Matthew 6, 24. It says, uh, it says, no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. He's talking about the love of money there. How about in Deuteronomy 6, 4? Deuteronomy The Israelites that we're reading about that were worshiping Baal, they had access to this. They knew this. Look what it says. It says, Hear, O Israel. That's God talking directly to his people. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And when we read in Matthew uh, 22, when we read in Mark 12, when we read in Luke 10, when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? Look what he says. He refers right back to this text. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. So this is why once the 450 Baal prophets showed up, and from what we can tell, the 400 prophets of Asherah, are the ones that were following Jezebel, they just didn't even bother to show up, which is a whole other sermon. But Elijah says to them, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. Because God is God, partial worship isn't enough. He alone is worthy of all of our praise. And these Baal prophets, remember, keep reminding yourself this. These weren't just people that they ran into in their, as they were journeying. They weren't like the Canaanites that they came across. This was Israel. This was God's chosen people. And likely, by the way, they hadn't completely abandoned worshiping Yahweh. They were just worshiping multiple gods. They were coming in with partial worship, they were looking for the best outcome. Can we fall into that same pattern? If I'd gone to the prophets of Baal at that time and I said, Do you worship Yahweh? they would say, Yeah, we worship Yahweh. But what if we change the question? What if I, so if I asked you, do you worship God? Do you worship the Lord God? I hope Christian, I hope church, you're going to say, of course I do. But what if we asked instead, what are all the things you worship? Is God just one of them? What else do you put your hope and your trust in? We've got to remind ourselves daily. We've got to stoke the fire. These Baal worshippers had gotten far away from that. They'd forgotten who God was. So we reflect on his grace to us. And keep this in mind as well. Realize that when we worship something else, when we put something else in the place that God rightfully deserves, hear this, we are rejecting God. We are actually rejecting his provision and his grace for us. When we trust other things, we're saying, we don't, we don't, your, your all knowing omniscience doesn't matter. We're saying that we know what's better for us than what he does. Without any need to, God is reaching his hand down to us and he is offering us him. And we are saying, no, I don't need you. Say we don't need God, church. He is so worthy. He is so worthy. And when Elijah asked the Baal prophets, How long will you waver between two opinions? we have to ask ourselves the same question How long? How long are we going to keep trusting in anything other than God? How long until you're going to worship him alone and give to him what he is so worthy of, which is our complete devotion and our trust? Well, the third thing that popped out at me from this text is he answers. God answers. When we petition the one true God, he answers. Not always in ways that we understand, Not always in ways that we like. Not even always in ways that we know about. But when God answers, he answers in truth. Now this can create a bit of a problem for us because by our very nature, we like to know things. Why we take things apart. When I was a kid, I loved taking things apart. There's a problem with that. I didn't know how to put them back together. And if you ask anyone who knows me, I am not a mechanically minded person. And if anybody is looking at my wife right now, she is going, He's not wrong. Now, I've gotten better at some things as I've gotten older, but when it comes to things like appliances, machinery, carpentry, plumbing, um, electrical, that's a long list, but you're getting the idea here. I am an absolute expert in taking things apart. I know nothing about putting them back together. And I have learned that that there is a reason that God has gifted skilled tradespeople. And it's to help people like me because they know how to put it back together. See, when God doesn't answer us in the way that we like or that we understand, sometimes we'll do what I would do in this situation if I got an answer from one of those experts and we look for a second opinion. It's like if something went wrong with my electrical panel, I would likely call Greg Martin the electrician. And Greg would come and he'd look at it and he'd say, Pastor Jim, here's what's wrong. You need to redo all the wiring. I have no idea why. I just should trust that it's right, but I don't like his answer. So instead, I do the next most logical thing and I call Greg Martin the chiropractor because he's going to give me a better answer. He's going to give me something that's a little bit more what I'm interested in hearing. And Greg Martin, the chiropractor, might be an excellent electrician. I'm looking over. I don't see a shaking no. No, he's not. Okay, good. Good example then. So when I have a problem and it's an electrical problem, what am I supposed to do? What have I learned from my experience? My experience says go to the expert first. Don't try to do it yourself. Don't try to find a, a substitute. Go to the expert When I have electrical problems, I call Greg Martin the electrician and I call it first and he gives me the answer before I can make the problem worse. This is the point. We need to go to God first. Then we need to leave it with him. He is the professional. He's the expert. Or we're going to make it worse. Look at: There is nobody better at being sovereign than God. God is the expert of being sovereign over the entire universe. He's really good at it. There's no one anywhere that has a better understanding of what you need and what I need than God. And by the way, that includes us. We don't know better than God does. And our experience with what he has done in our lives That needs to dictate our trust. And putting hope in anything other than him can blind you to what he's done or what he's doing. This is what was happening with the Baal prophets. They're out there calling to him. Elijah, first he sets up the challenge, right? He says, all right, each side's gonna take an ox or a bull. They're gonna chop it up. They're gonna put it on some wood. And then they're gonna, the Baal prophets are gonna pray to Baal. And Elijah's gonna pray to Yahweh, And whoever, whichever person answers by fire, their God. These Baal prophets hadn't learned from experience. Had they not thought about what God had done up to this point in their lives? They were the Israelites. But they're looking for a false God to come and, and take this ox, just light it up, barbecue it. So they start, and in verse 26, it says that they called on Baal to answer them from morning until noon. The Baal prophets did. From morning until noon, they called on Baal. Baal, answer us. Baal, answer us. But look what it says. It says there was no response and there was no answer. No one answered. They would have had the same success walking up to a rock, walking up to a tree, walking up to a pole, and asking it to make it rain. It was going to have the exact same response. But they were they were turning their attention to the wrong place. Why? Because false gods don't answer real people. They can't. Only the one true God does. But rather than give up after all of this calling out to him, what did they do? Well, the Baal prophets dug their heels in even deeper. See, Baal had been known to contemplate the requests of people. So people would come and they would say, uh, they would make their request to Baal, and Baal might have to think about it for a while. This is why Elijah starts to taunt them, it says. He yells out, shout louder! Surely he's a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping. Maybe he must be awakened. But we learn a very important lesson here, and that lesson is this. Those who are desperate to find their hope in something other than God will grasp at any straw to cling to false hope. Look what verse 28 says. It says, so they shouted louder and they slashed themselves with swords and spears as was their custom until their blood flowed. Midday passed and they continued their, listen, frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. They were desperate and they were cutting themselves. They were stabbing themselves. They were slicing themselves because they thought that if Baal saw what they were willing to do to themselves, that he would answer. They were trying to invoke an answer from something that can't answer. What was the response? Verse 29. There was no response, no one answered, no one paid attention. If you're reading your Bible and you hear the same, three, the same word three times in one sentence, the author is trying to get you to pay attention to what it's saying. What did it say? No response, no one answered, no one paid attention. What's the point being stressed? Again, false gods cannot answer the needs of real people. They have no power. The only power that a false God has is the power that, the value that you place on it. But it's never gonna answer you. You wanna put your hope all in money? It's never gonna answer you. You wanna put it in other people? God is the expert. We have to leave it there. We might not always understand We might not always see how he answers, but we don't need to because he is God and we are not. And that brings me to our fourth point, and that is that he is all powerful. Look, the power of God defies all logic of humans, it it defies all understanding. Just picture what's going on here, okay? Uh, In verse 32, or verse 30, Elijah goes over to the altar of the Lord. That was the one that was the first altar that they built. That was the proper altar for the worship of the Lord. And it says that he repaired it. He picked it up. So they had this altar that was the right one, but they just discarded it so they could build an altar to Baal. And that's a symbol of what's going on in this text. Elijah is repairing and restoring through his actions the relationship between Yahweh and his people. He takes 12 stones. Those 12 stones represent the 12 tribes of Israel. See that pattern? Remind yourself of what God has done. He makes the altar with them, and then he digs a big trench around it, and he places his ox on it. He takes four large pitchers of water. Large pitchers. It specifies that we're in the middle of a drought. Well, we're at the end of the drought, it's about to be over. But this drought's been going on for three years. Water is a commodity. And Elijah says, get four large pitchers, pour it on the wood. I don't know if you know this, but wet wood and fire are not friends. It creates a lot of smoke, but not a lot of fire. Then he commands them to do it twice more. That means that there are 12 large pitchers of water that have been poured out. They've soaked everything. It can't absorb anything else. And as it soaks everything, it fills up the trench. And the Israelites are all watching this go on. It wasn't just the 450 Baal Prophets. The Israelites are all there watching it too. And they have a front row seat, these 450 Baal Prophets. And after everything that they'd done, the dancing around, the frantic prophesying, the bloodletting, their voices must have been really rough. They must have been sweaty. They must have been dirty. They must have been tired. Here comes this one guy using fire as a test and they see him pouring water all over everything. Were the odds not stacked against him enough? 450 versus one. But you know what? Even when you're outnumbered 450 to one, truth is truth. The majority doesn't dictate what truth is. It doesn't matter what everybody else says. It matters what God says. And when the odds are stacked against God, that just gives him so much more opportunity to show off what he does, to show who he is, leave no question as to who deserves the glory. And to be honest with you, this pouring of the water was probably not Elijah's strategy if he had to think of one. We're gonna do something with fire. What do you wanna do? Let's soak all the wood first. Let's create a trench and a river around it. But you know why he had no problem doing it? Look at what he says here in verse 36. He says, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. When God asked him to do it, He didn't try to understand, he just obeyed. And there was a reason for this, by the way. There's a purpose for what God did. It wasn't just so that he could show them what was, how, how good he was. Philip Comfort, in his uh, commentary, says faith doesn't come from being dazzled. No, look what he says in verse 37. He says, answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. He is prompting repentance in them in this very act of prompting this repentance. Think about these four, the first four points already. There's the grace that he had. He's giving them an undeserved opportunity to repent. Why? Because he wants the worship from his people that he is worthy of. And he's about to answer this request of Elijah because he's a God that answers and he's gonna do it in a way that shows that he is all powerful over everything. Look what it says. It says, The fire of the Lord fell And burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. Look, he didn't just dry up the water like he had for the last three years. He took out everything. Ox, gone. Wet wood, gone. Stones and soil, gone. What does that say? It says that he's not he's not sovereign over the water, he's sovereign over everything. He's in control. How did they respond? Well, they fell on their faces in worship, acknowledging that God is who he is. That needs to be our response. When we recognize that we've gone the wrong way, remember, recognition of misplaced hope and idolatry requires repentance and recognition of God's mercy. Finally, as we wrap up here, our last point is he is just. The text reminds us that there are consequences, spiritually fatal consequences to what we do. In this case, there were physical consequences consequences that were physically fatal as well these bell prophets that were seized and killed that wasn't a signal of victory that wasn't Elijah doing a victory dance going look we won no he was acting in obedience to what was told in Deuteronomy 13 and 17 about what you're supposed to do to people who lead people to false idols it was actually acting in obedience to God's commands yes God is gracious and loving but don't forget that he is righteous and just as well and there are consequences for what we do. Look, the New Testament is just, it's overflowing with warnings against this kind of stuff. Do not put things where God rightfully deserves to be, okay? 1 John 5, 21 says, avoid it. Colossians 3:5 says to put it to death. 1 Corinthians 10, 14 says, flee from it. Galatians 5, 19 to 21 warns us against it. Why? Because every time that we put something where God rightfully deserves to be, we are dishonoring what God and Christ has done for us. We just celebrated communion. We're dishonoring that when we put something else where God rightfully deserves to be. So here's some questions. If we have a great and loving God, why do we often act as though his instruction is inconsequential? Why do we keep putting ourselves and other things in the place that God rightfully deserves to be? Yes, we love Jesus as our Savior, but we can't forget that he is also our Lord. His Lordship matters over our life. It's hard to do. Obedience and trust is hard to do because of our sinful nature. But remember, and that's what's going on with the Baal prophet. This is our sinful nature coming out. But when we remember that we have a sinful nature, we have to remember a couple of things. One, because of our sinful nature, one, we cannot trust our own point of view. You have to go to God. You have to see it for what it is and it's from his point of view. Two, we cannot put our trust in material things. They are empty and they are meaningless. They are powerless. They only have to carry the value that you assign to it. And three, we certainly can't trust the majority to help us. Our culture has abandoned God a long time ago. We got to put our trust where it belongs and that's with God alone. So as I started our message today, I asked you this question. Ask yourself this question right now. Who do I think God is and do I act like that's true? Do you believe God has been gracious to you? Do you believe that he's worthy of your worship? Do you believe that he answers even when you might not understand it? Do you believe that he's all powerful? Do you believe that he's righteous and just? Look what Elijah did. He prayed in the bad times, right? He prayed to God, his request. And then when they had the victory, when God showed them who he was, what happened? He told Ahab, go celebrate, eat and drink. What did he do? Took his servant, went up to the mountain and he prayed again and again and again in waiting to see what God was gonna do and how he was gonna answer. He prayed seven times until the rain finally came. Maybe right now the Lord has convicted you of something. It's Maybe you feel convicted. Maybe you know what that is. Don't ignore it. You have an opportunity right in this moment to repent. You ask him to forgive you and help you move away from your reliance on it. Yes, he is gracious. Yes, he is worthy. Yes, he answers. Remember, whatever it is, he is all powerful. There is nothing too big for him. And he is just. And we need to praise his name forever. Father, I just thank you for this morning. I thank you for the reminder that we have of who you are and just just a few characteristics. God, you're so much more. Lord, I pray for every person right now on the lot who may feel or have been moved by the Holy Spirit that they need to turn their hearts to you. The people at home, God, as they recognize that There is so much more that that they could be giving and that they could be turning over to you. God, would you help each one of them repent, Lord, and answer them? God, would you help bring them some release from whatever it is that's binding them? Father, we thank you for you, who you are, that you are God and we are not. And we thank you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.